Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. First, Polyconf 2016 will be taking place from the 30th of June through the 2nd of July. Visit polyconf.com to keep updated with news as more details become available and to sign up for newsletter updates. Curion is taking place July 18th and 19th in Rome. Curion is a rare event where academic minds responsible for concepts and tools now invaluable to everyday software development like functional programming or generics in Java collide with the movers and shakers in the industry that are building next-generation systems and developing software engineering practices central to our entire industry. Visit curry-on.org to find out more and register, and your ticket is good for all of the European Conference for Object-Oriented Programming as well. Full Stack Fest will be held in Barcelona on September 5th through the 9th. It will be comprised of two main blocks with a gap day in between. The call for papers is open with 16 speaker slots. Talks are 40 minutes long, including Q&A. You have until May 14th to submit a talk, and Full Stack Fest is issuing a call to action to attract potential speakers to join them on stage and inspire technology peers. No excuses. Accommodation and traveling expenses are on them. You can check out 2016.fullstackfest.com slash call-for-papers to find out more and to submit your paper too. If you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Russ Proctor, and this week with us we have Brian Lonsdorf. Brian, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. Let's see. I am a. I like to just kind of talk to my, talk about myself as like the Tom Hanks of functional programming. <laughs> like a lot of people are trying to get into functional programming lately, and it's a very hard subject to tackle. There's a lot of different like varieties and flavors, and you know, academia that kind of come comes along with it. And I like to be the guy that people are like, well, if he can do it, I can do it. <laughs> so um, just try to make concrete examples and work on that stuff. So I had the luxury of running a company called Lupercur for a while that I gracefully bowed out of recently to take a job at Salesforce because I got the fam to take care of. They're still going strong, though. And it gave me a lot of uh, opportunity to experiment with different languages, learn new paradigms and give talks about our explorations. So that's kind of led me to where we are today. So I found you from a couple different places. One was you had a presentation about how underscore got it wrong, talking about underscore JS and functional programming introduction in JavaScript. Your mostly adequate guide to functional programming little book that you have out on GitHub and Gitbooks, I believe. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a lean pub. Mine's going blank at this point, but, yeah. and then you also have YouTube videos with the same character from your Mostly Adequate Guide, in which case you have <laughs> Professor Frisbee teaching students things about functional programming. And <laughs> I found those and didn't realize that they were all tied together until later <laughs> and have been enjoying that. So I wanted to get you on to talk about functional programming because you've covered a number of different languages and the balance of introducing people into functional programming and using something like JavaScript. So Let's start with how you got into functional programming and what your background was. In the pre-call, you mentioned you kind of came in through a different route with a more OO background. So 
Can you give everybody a little bit of background about how you got into programming, how you, and then how you made the change into doing more functional programming and, and picking that style up? Yeah, sure. I started doing Ruby on Rails in like 2005, six, somewhere around there, and and you know I was kind of the band on the bandwagon with the DHH blog post, like, whoa, check it out, we can build a blog in like 10 seconds. And I got really into that. And after a while, we started getting more serious about object-oriented design, just using design patterns in Ruby and exploring that stuff. Um, And I used a number of different languages around those times between maybe 2006 to 2012 or so, or uh, 2011 or 10, maybe. We explored C Sharp, PHP, Ruby, Java, um, Objective-C, like just a number of stuff. We were running a small consultancy with a few people. So we got to, you know, we had to make an iPhone app. So we made it, you know, we learned Objective-C. But I quickly started to realize, maybe not quickly, but after consuming all the books from like Uncle Bob and and you mentioned Domain-Driven Design earlier, it was like my favorite book at the time. And I was really hammering on it. And I realized that there was this dream that I've never, I'd never seen realized. It had been like six years and I hadn't seen one person really write a readable, understandable <laughs> object-oriented program. I was like, I mean, small libraries and stuff, but like, it was just like either programming is impossibly hard or maybe we're doing this wrong, right? And I always kind of felt like either I was just not good enough to do it or, you know, I hadn't, hadn't really read enough or practiced enough. And I just said, you know, screw it, I'm going to try functional instead. And I went to Erlang because it was the most powerful, right? It was like, I can scale the world. <laughs> and I, I just liked the syntax. It's so prickly and you don't have a lot of tools to like really explore the paradigm. It's more about the actor model and just simplicity. And it's beautiful and really good in that way, but wasn't scratching my functional itch. So I went to the Haskell side and dabbled in that enclosure, doing small consultant stuff. So... Uh, Yeah, it was kind of like a long journey, uh, but it was all kind of motivated by my own insecurities and poor programming (laughs) practices. So I I wrote really bad functional programs for like four years and finally kind of got the hang of it a couple years ago. So I've been talking about it. So you found an issue with non-maintainable, non-understandable object-oriented programming. Have you found that difference in the functional programs you write when you go back and have to go rework on them if you've stepped away and then lost familiarity or have you managed to find something that actually works for you where this now becomes understandable at a larger scale as well than just the small libraries and small applications right uh that's a that's a great question i'm a believer now in the functional style precisely because of what happened maybe it's because i've just been programming longer um maybe if i started with functional and switched to object-oriented later i'd be like well object-oriented is the way but what i found in general is that aside from the fact when i was learning just like i was learning design patterns i was shoehorning these horrible design patterns into you know like situations they shouldn't have been used in just because i wanted to use them <laughs> and i was doing the same thing like oh i gotta use a profunctor here i knew what a, i learned what profunctor is i'm gonna use it somewhere and you end up with these like towers of abstractions that don't really quite fit exactly what's going on but aside from that just functional programming is it kind of attacks the things that really make your program difficult, right? If you have 
a lot of different paths for your program to take that makes it more complex. And if you force every input or every function to take input to output, it makes it a lot clearer and easier to follow the control flow of your application. You can just kind of watch your data kind of fall through your app without dealing with, you know, a billion objects with all the different state changes and you don't really have a coherent control flow there. And um, so state and control flow are two things that just like made my app so much simpler to read and understand once I was familiar with the practices of functional programming. And so that's really paid off. And that kind of leads into the next thing I was going to mention. Or I, When you say functional programming, what does that mean to you? And what are those <laughs> principles? Because there's the old, I think it was Alan Perlis, where you ask a thousand people what to define functional programming, you're going to get a thousand and one answers or something like that. And <laughs> because we were also talking about your OO on the pre-call, and you kind of apply those principles. And when you teach it, it's like you can use this in conjunction with some other stuff, or at least some of the stuff. They're not mutually exclusive. So what does functional programming mean to you when you're going around and using it for yourself and trying to introduce others? Because we'll get into your introduction to others later, but we'll start yeah. with what does that concept mean to you when you think right. about functional uh, programming? I think the main takeaway for me, at least with functional programming, is that you want to work with pure functions and you know that you, there are functional languages quote unquote like you know everybody says like oh it's the basis of lambda calculus and if it you know uses that then it's functional but i really believe that if you're working with mathematical functions that are pure input to output that will kind of guide everything else everything else just kind of follows from that so like if you're not sure you're doing it right just make sure your functions take one input to one output and you're done and even the one input to one output thing is kind of a farce, right? Because they cheat using currying to make that quote unquote one input. But I, I just kind of envision your set of arguments is your input, not necessarily one argument is your input. But yeah, uh, there was one one part of that question that was interesting to me uh, about how do I explain it to others or whatever. And that's, and we'll get into it for sure, but I, I use a lot of object-oriented stuff at work because... I have to because I program JavaScript with a bunch of object-oriented programmers <laughs> and I'm sneaking in stuff because object-oriented programmers have started to embrace immutability and a lot of functional ideas. And that's not necessarily functional programming, but the more of that, you know, we say we're like going functional by trying to uh, minimize state and work with immutable structures and stuff like that. So I think there's two definitions. One's like functional uh, MV, like let's, it's like a virtuous, like, let's go functional. And the other one's actual functional programming, which can be kind of painful for people who don't know all the abstractions. And the one input, one output, when you were talking about cheating, that made me think of, well, you still have one output, but we've returned a tuple of five different things. So we're kind of cheating there as well. But <laughs> True. But then the other thing was in your videos with Professor Frisbee that you have on YouTube, you also had one segment where someone interrupts the class that Professor Frisbee's teaching and starts saying, well, this isn't functional because of this. And then all these different examples and the, all the counterexamples of like, well, this is a functional language. Why isn't it? Even though it doesn't meet that criteria. So that was one of the things. That, there's that argument that a lot of people make, but then what was the stuff that you actually feel? So that was why I was wanting to kind of get down to Oh, right. What made functional for you versus 
you hear all these arguments, and I think in your video it was like, well, this doesn't have macros. It's like, well, neither does Haskell. <laughs> Types right. don't. It doesn't. It's not strongly typed. Well, Lisp is dynamically like it's not statically typed. Well, Lisp isn't statically typed. What is like all these different things are are different yeah. things. So it's like what what for you is it versus the different arguments that everybody makes? Where no, my language is functional. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and I, and I think it is. It all comes down to you know just working with mathematical functions, whether or not you're envisioning set as the argument input, or you're actually you know explicitly passing you know a set of arguments or using currying to take one at a time. That's really it's really what it boils down to for me. And so when you made that transition, going back to that time when you started looking at Erlang and Clojure and all these other languages. What was that transition like? You've kind of felt at odds and felt something weird about the object-oriented software you were writing. And when you went out and explored, how did you find the transition into functional programming? Was that something that just came natural to you from some other things you had been exposed to? And you're like, hey, I get this now. Or that's odd. This is really weird. But let me push through it. And eventually, oh, okay, now I'm starting to see the common thread here or get how this applies. Or wait, I was doing that in OO stuff. I'm still doing this. It's just a slight twist because I don't have proper functions as first-class citizens. I had to create a interface that had one method that I could just pass around as a command object or whatever in C-sharp or Java or whatever it was. What was that struggle or transformation or enlightenment look like, whichever it was, as you made that gap into going from an OO mindset to understanding the functional mindset? Good question. There was a few things that were really difficult for me because, you know, like, I'm not sure if you use Windows or Mac, but I switched from Windows to Mac right when I started programming. I was like, well, I need to get a Mac and be a real programmer. And like my mom let me borrow some money so I could do it. And it was like all that hard won knowledge of like how to like go into my MS config or like tweak all these little like Windows settings and and make my computer actually work right went out at the window. So when I got my Mac, I was like, how do I tweak this thing? Or, you know, what happens when something goes wrong? Or like, I don't understand how this thing works. It just works, right? And I think I had that same kind of idea with object-oriented to functional. I was like, where's, you know, how do I make an adapter? And where's my, you know, name any strategy pattern or and name any real big design architecture, like solid, things like these. Like I was like, I was obsessed with that stuff because that was the stuff that, you know, started to make my programs a little bit more tolerable, I thought at least. And it was hard to make that analogy from all my hard won knowledge to the functional side of things where they're talking about like, well, you know, composition is key. And I was like, oh, I know composition. I just put a bunch of objects inside my object and delegate, right? That's what that is. And so, so trying to port object-oriented knowledge to that didn't really work out for me. But there was a lot of really great principles, just like keep it simple, stupid, and dry, or at least the rule of three, where you abstraction uh, after you've repeated it three times, or you ain't going to need it. Or, did I already mention that? But there's like, you know, just all those nice principles that kind of guide a good program, inversion of control and things like that. That's where I was able to port all that and keep all that. And I really struggled with the ideas. I was like, it was more about aesthetics for me at first. Like, ooh, this is functional because it looks like this. <laughs> um, I didn't really understand my goals at the time. So when I was working on the uh, Mostly Adequate Guide, I wanted to start off the book with, you've got 
uh, well, it's more of a guide than a book, but I wanted to start it off with like, you know, if you're working within the mathematical framework, you're guaranteeing good abstractions, you're guaranteeing composability, you've got properties to reason about your program. This is all stuff I just never even considered or didn't understand during the transition. So if somebody was just up front and said, listen, like, try to use mathematical abstractions, they will just ensure that your program makes sense and works great and composes and never gets more complex because you know composition means I take something of type A, another thing of type A, and I mash them in together into one new thing of type A. So now I haven't introduced A, B, and C, like an, something of type A, something of type B, and an adapter C that tries to mix them together. So you have this kind of explosion of complexity in the other style of programming, whereas with functional, you're just always trying to stay within this like rigid set of rules. And so you mentioned the mostly adequate guide to functional programming, and you chose JavaScript for that, <laughs> which makes sense because it's very accessible and ubiquitous. Is that the reason you chose it, or was there some other reason you chose JavaScript versus other languages for that transition? Because I know you could do stuff in like, Python's got some support and Ruby's got some support. And there's some of these other things which kind of like walk the line to being, they're not functional, but they have the ability to, to do strongly functional things if you go that route, even though it's not necessarily idiomatic in some of those other languages. Was it just the ubiquity of JavaScript or was it your familiarity or what was some of the reasons that you actually decided to pick up JavaScript and run with it? And as a side, I asked this because at the first beginning of that stuff, you actually show some of the nice ability of JavaScript where you're not actually having to redefine functions just to call another function. And it's like, look, we have this in JavaScript. Take advantage of it. Don't just write a new function which wraps another function just to call it if you don't need delayed execution. So what was the reason for using JavaScript? So a couple years ago, my buddy Joe Nelson and I, and he, he's a trained mathematician, I should mention, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that I have no formal mathematical training and everything I've learned is through, a, you know, the programming interface of whatever math, you know, I, I will read like math books here and there to try to get more of a background. It's really interesting now, but I should just throw that out there. If you're worried about all this mathematical stuff, it's like, you don't really, it's just an API really at the end of the day. But that said, moving on. So, so the reason I chose JavaScript, <laughs> which is kind of like me and Joe back in the day were like, okay, we want to teach more people how to do functional programming. We love functional programming and nobody really seems to get it. And Haskell was just, it seems to be getting more and more popular in the last couple of years. But, you know, at the time it seemed like this kind of esoteric language that you really have to spend all this time teaching the language before you can teach the ideas. And the language is much more approachable or, you know, not just Haskell, but other functional languages are much more approachable if you already understand the paradigm, right? You could pick up any object-oriented language and kind of just muddle your way through the syntax until you write a nice program if you understand the actual paradigm. And the same applies to functional, right? So you, you can learn it through the language that everybody knows. So yes, it was part of the ubiquity of it. But also, I was writing Haskell every day at Loop Recur and writing JavaScript because you have to still write JavaScript. And PureScript and Elm weren't quite where they needed to be at the time, even though we were actually working with PureScript at like version 0. Point whatever. <laughs> um, there was just no libraries and stuff. So yeah, I was using JavaScript all day and I was like, this has everything you need. Like, let's just teach it through that. And since then, it's been kind of a 
pain point for me. A little, a little bit of a, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but the idea is that you know people are like, well, we got to write functional JavaScript because this is the right way to write JavaScript because Brian said so. And it's like, there's a big disclaimer that basically says like, here's the paradigm, use this paradigm in to learn and then go take up a different language. And then that said, I still promote a very functional style using object-oriented syntax in JavaScript. And I'm, I'm working on a little workshop to kind of clear that up. Like, here's how you can use dot syntax with disjunction and with continuations and with uh, things that are algebraically, that you can reason about them and it makes a lot of sense. And you can just, it'll really simplify your code base for real, even though you're still doing object-oriented syntax. And... I think that's the real solution in JavaScript, not introducing currying and composition and stuff like that. And as I started to allude to at the beginning was you talk about some of these things where, yes, functions are first-class citizens in JavaScript. And the first few chapters just kind of go over that. And they tie in with another presentation you have about underscore had it wrong. And at work, when we use JavaScript, and it hasn't actually taken advantage of some of that stuff where we're still using underscore dot each. And then doing essentially a reduce or doing a map. Yeah. But we're using underscore dot each. There's kind of that look here, let's do this. Or now we're going to create a new property with a new field that has just a function, which is a function from another thing. And we're just going to call that thing instead of just assigning that function. Because again, it's a functional programming languages. Functions are first class citizens and data types. So we can just assign a value of one function to be the function that is another function because they're just variables. And so I like to use that book that now that I found it and start to introduce like here, if you're going to read it, just only look at the first three chapters even and start to understand how some of that stuff can be taken advantage of versus having to do the hoops that we're having to do. Yeah. And well, you know, and you also have, the old adage of never forget JavaScript hates you. <laughs> um, it's, uh, you know, everybody in the JavaScript community is still writing a lot of object-oriented style code that takes advantage of this, um, which is, you know, the leakiest abstraction in the world. You have to understand that somebody is using this and inside their function when you're calling it later. Like, nobody really knows how that function's implemented. And I guess unless you call two string on it, <laughs> but you're going to blow up unless you like bind and things like that. So I think using first class functions in JavaScript is a terrific thing to work towards and get more people into. And if you're writing your own code base, you're totally safe. But, you know, the browser APIs are based on object oriented syntax and you can't even call it console.log first class in Chrome, right? Because it expects console to be the one calling.log. So you have to bind it to itself. So it's definitely a minefield in this day and age. And part of that book when I was writing it was to get more people on board with like, this is kind of a bad idea to bank on. We have this wonderful prototypical language that you can actually pull methods off of objects and, and call them with other objects. And that's really interesting and stuff, but nobody does it. One, inheritance is kind of I mean, everybody agrees inheritance is bad at this point. I mean, like if you're going to use it, use it very, very minimally. And everybody says prefer delegation, right? Um, there's just really no argument against like, everybody should use inheritance. And yet that's like still, they're like, yeah, <laughs> prototypical inheritance. This is our, our new jam. So I, I just feel like if we could change the mindset of a few people with in JavaScript trying to write these Swiss Army knife functions that don't really compose like Legos, you know, they 
composed like Swiss Army knives. Like you can't actually call a function with five different arguments or, you know, with different argument types and you can't call it first class. And, you know, there's all these caveats because of the way people write it, not because of the language itself, even though the language is kind of a giant foot gun anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. And with that is the question, because I know along those lines, and again, we're jumping all over the place a little bit about <laughs> what you've done. So, but they all kind of tie together. So I'm kind of just jumping back and forth. But in your YouTube videos with Professor Frisbee and in your talk at one of the conferences a couple of years ago with how underscore got it wrong, you start to show off Ramda. And I had David Chambers on the show a number of episodes ago on episode 31 talking about Ramda. And he's the one who gave me the first introduction. But it's about that thing of saying, look, if we only have half the function, why is a list the part that's the most changeable and flexible and things that's going to happen? Why is that the first argument versus the last when if we carry everything down or we just have a function that wraps it and then only takes that and delegates? Because I know you're a proponent of that style as well, not necessarily going into the full on Haskell types and type system of JavaScript, but Pushing that towards saying, okay, how do you find these Lego pieces? How do you make the Lego pieces out of smaller things or even bigger things and make them smaller and make them into smaller Lego pieces that can be fit together better? Everything that I kind of push is about composability. Like that is my number one agenda in this world. And I, I say that and trying to kill selenium or replace it with something better. But um, the main, the main thing about uh, that style is that you can define functions are very, very, very powerful, right? And if you define, for instance, the monadic chain or flat map or whatever you want to call it, and you have the monadic function join or flatten, whatever you want to call it, um, it's called flat map and flatten. So flat map can be defined in terms of map and flatten, and flatten can be defined in terms of flat map. You just flat map ID. And so having that mutual exclusive kind of like, you know, one function defined in ter terms of the other is really powerful. And you don't get that with object oriented style, right? You can't, you have, you try to call flatten on an object that doesn't have it, it'll blow up. But if you call it, pass it into the function, it'll say, oh, well, I have a flat map here. I'll use that with ID or I have a flatten here and a map. Well, first call map and flatten it. And you can kind of use functions to give yourself uh, a lot more power in, in that way. And and define things in these single-use functions that kind of hold properties, right? Whereas with object-oriented programming, um, or at least the the syntax, um, you've got to kind of do things different ways, extend prototypes and whatnot. And so I think there's a lot of power in the curry, compose, point-free abilities there. But also, yeah, it's it's also kind of going against the grain with the rest of the community. So like. There's people who love it and adopt it and embrace it and do reap the benefits of that style. And then there's people who are less comfortable but still can program 100% functionally. And there's so many other constructs, like just introducing something like data.task into your workflow, that will change everything. Or lazy streams, for instance, or data.either, mentioning these libraries from Folktale, but really the concept of you know, these principled composable continuations or disjunction as a library gives you the ability to compose things all the way down. And I think you can compose first class functions or you can compose object oriented style as long as you're using the right tools. That's kind of where I stand. I'd say go, go either way, but you're really going to have to spend a lot of time wrapping other 
libraries because right now as it stands the state of the world is not very functional and you know don't take advantage of these little lego functions yeah it's kind of up to you how much work you want to do and then i want to just ask only a few more questions maybe this is the last one before we get into some of the back-end work because i know you've done back-end stuff with a bunch of different languages but on the front-end side and this kind of segues into those other languages is there's Elm and PureScript that you've played with, but your videos also show off React. And so if you're trying to get people in, how do you balance in the concept of React and their composability and some of that stuff? And then how do you have you found that actually leads people into looking into Elm and PureScript and some of these other things that are even more niche? And how have you found that? Because I noticed you take a lot of Ramda and all these point free and fantasy land and all these other libraries in your YouTube videos showing stuff off with React, you're able to knock out this little scrapbook thing relatively quickly and with very little code to get something that looks nice and has some good solid behavior around it. So have you found the React world and those ideas being brought in an adoption and then people taking either, what have you found around that, I guess? I think uh, React is a great. I'm I'm so like thankful for React being around because so many people are now like kind of on board with this functional style. I, I think you know there's, there's people who are skeptical. They're they're always skeptical of high level composable declarative interfaces because they're like, well, this isn't real programming. Real programming looks like C code and it's crazy fast. Um, and, <laughs> and React is kind of showing that you don't have to do that and it's going to be way more maintainable. And I think that React has a very clear um, separate. It's very. It's got an object-oriented style to it. You define basically a class and a render. You know, you end up writing methods. So what I try to do is write the smallest amount of methods in my React component and call out to functions to get values back, and then really just set state whenever I need to re-render. But there's a lot of other options out there like Cycle.js and things like that, or even just RxJS with the scan function. You can easily uh, recreate uh, you know, what React is doing for you in just a few lines. Um, of course, you need the diffing algorithm and whatnot, but it's just a great paradigm shift for everybody to kind of get on board with declarative UIs with functions kind of driving that. So I really like that. And then I also like the fact that Redux and these type of frameworks around React are really, I mean, Redux is like trying to popularize the idea of reducers and immutability and purity, because if you're not pure, like it's going to break the render cycle. So once you kind of get the idea of that, you can kind of walk right into Elm or PureScripts, because PureScripts has like Thermite and Halogen that pretty much mimic React, um, because they're doing it in a functional declarative way. And the same thing with Redux and the other kind of Elm architecture style things with a global store. They're going to kind of try to mimic what the pure functional people are doing. But JavaScript's a little too loose for people to, you know, you really have to be kind of rigid about what you're doing and make sure you're not introducing side effects and stuff. One last thing on that note is that when I wrote the React app for the Frisbee series, it was, I didn't want to introduce, like, I didn't want to have to explain myself with Redux and all these different tools on top of like I wanted to keep it very slim so we focus on the actual functional programming part of it, not all these details of just writing a front-end application with React or Redux. 
But the idea behind Redux and stuff is, I mean, it's really just kind of a free monad dissected and not as composable as it could be. And I think the exploration there in front-end functional programming rendering style like frameworks, if you go read through the halogen source, you start to look at the way PureScript is doing things like, you know, your action in Redux is going to be an actual type with a value in it, and it can compose with other types. And you don't need, your reducer is really just an interpreter for your free monad. So you can really compose these interesting workflows and then just interpret them down. And once that's done, it refreshes the screen. We're moving into a really cool direction. And with those last little things, you probably just lost everybody's interest who hadn't checked it out <laughs> because now they're intimidated by hearing free monad and <laughs> and everything else. True, true. The funny thing about free monads, we're actually using them at work. And, you know, it's at Salesforce, like, which is like, what? Why would they be using free monads? But for uh, heavy... People reach straight for Gulp or something when they're doing this stuff. And they end up in this like world of Gulp where everything has to be Gulp. And if you're writing kind of like DevOpsy, like moving files around or posting zips to a server and trying to uh, or you know, we're we're doing stuff like parsing and and rewriting stuff. But the idea is that if you if you write it with a free monad, all you're doing is your functions become types and the arguments to your function becomes the property of that type. That's all that's happening. And it's just wrapped by this one little extra type in there that lets you compose it with uh, other things. So instead of writing, you're basically calling functions, but you're able to chain them and kind of create a workflow. And the reason that's so important for things like DevOps work is because when you give it your quote unquote reducer or interpreter for all it does is run the functions that those types represent. It gives you instant mocks. You can visualize things. You can give it a little virtual file system. So when you're interpreting it in your test, you can say like, oh, well, I expect, you know, this file to be in this part of uh, my in-memory tree data structure, not the actual file system. And it, it makes for testing really volatile things like dead simple it's, it's really really a great tool so I, I would highly recommend looking into that so you're saying salesforce is writing a new posix shell free monad that lets you write everything <laughs> in javascript that is uh, maybe i'm not not as many words but <laughs> i'm saying i'm i'm trying to shoot a force everybody to use functional the heaviest functional constructs at work <laughs> uh, so yeah so from the backend side, you played with a bunch of different languages, and we'll probably still stick in and talk a little bit about the front end stuff with Elm and PureScript. But again, if you're going through Clojure and some other Lisp and Erlang and Scala before you actually get into Haskell and then PureScript and Elm, which has the stronger types, stronger stuff, what were some of those transitions like and what actually got you into the interest in the strongly type? Because even in your JavaScript stuff, you were making type annotations above your functions and saying, we're looking at constraints. We're thinking about what goes in and what comes out. Right now, all we have is comments, but we're going to do that to still at least document our time and mindset at that time and maybe even create some higher level types that say, this isn't any type or whatever it is, or even this isn't either type, even though there is no real either. So what was that transition from looking at some of these other things that are just more dynamically functional or not strongly typed functional like a Haskell or Scala with Scala Z or Scala Z, however you pronounce it. But what was that transition like into looking at the functional with the functional with the strong type and mathy backgrounds, especially when you said yourself, you didn't actually come from a math background? 
Yeah. I find it just so fascinating to read about type theory and how like, you know, you can actually reason about types algebraically. You can make the connection to set theory where you say, you know, your type maybe, which is just just and nothing, is like, you know, just a set of those two types. Or easier one is Boolean, right? You've got true and false, and that's your set of two things. That's your type. And you can check inclusion of that set. And it's just a really powerful tool in programming for reasoning about what's going on with types. And I like dynamic programming because I like sometimes, you know, you just know you can get something done and you don't want to worry about fighting the compiler and and worry about all these types that are coming back. And just for instance, if you're writing a pure script function, you can write that function and then go to the the actual REPL and ask for the type of that function because of the inference, right? And then you get to this level where you're using so many abstractions that it can't actually tell you the type of that function. You spend all this time trying to figure out how to write the type signature of this function so that the compiler is like, okay, thumbs up, we got it. And it's arguable that you can go you know, spend the same amount of time writing a test to cover it, and it's going to be less strong as the type signature itself. But I just think that the dynamic way of doing things sometimes makes sense, especially if you're doing stuff like REPL or, you know, file system work, DevOps stuff. Like, you don't really need these crazy strong types to make sure your app always works exactly right. Like, I'm just writing a script here. So I am a big fan of types, and I love types, but sometimes I really enjoy like a lean, mean, (laughs) crazy dynamic language. And it shows when I'm writing dynamic code that types help me reason about what's going on. And, you know, it's subject to the same problems as other comments in code. They just get outdated, they're wrong, like they don't stay prominent and up to date. Whereas in something like Scholar or Haskell, they're there to help you instead of fight you. But Elm doesn't have the ability to do the like higher kinded types. At least I don't think. I don't have that much experience with Elm, to be honest. I've leaned towards PureScript this whole time, just kind of like kept up with the community of Elm because I'm always kind of, I would much rather be doing Elm at work every day if I could, right? So, you know, I'm just kind of promoting these ideas at all times. But yeah, the transition from types language to a dynamic language, I think that the hardest thing is trying to read someone's example of here's how you might use cofree or here's how you might use this comonad on a non-empty list you know and or the non-empty list is the comonad but you're looking at these type signatures and you're trying to figure out what's going on there and people are explaining everything in terms of type signatures and then you go to something like closure or javascript and you don't have that anymore and it doesn't make any more you know you don't really have that concrete example like you would want in a dynamic language so there's a lot of bridging of gaps <laughs> with that. And how did that learning come around? Because there seems to be two phases. One is you either came from dynamic and came into a static and maybe a strongly, very statically, very strict static language versus coming in from a static language like Java or C++ or Objective-C or C-sharp or whatever it is, where it's still a static language, but it's not, or even Scala, where it's still a static language, but you're not taking advantage of all the types. So it's like, once you get past, it's like, okay, Boolean's a set of types. Sure, there's true and false, or the maybe monad. If I just understand the concept, there's some or none, or just or none, or whatever your language calls it. 
But then again, you get into the higher abstractions, and this is where that second leap comes into is it almost gets you back into interfaces, the types as interfaces versus types as sets again, and then building up the abstractions there. So what did you find there, and do you have any good tips for people that are making their way through those couple different phases? And maybe there's even more phases that you get once you start to like, okay, now I can understand some of this stuff. And now here's the more detailed algebraic data types that are past even some of the simple things like functor or a monad even. Right. That's tough, right? Because like when you start looking at real code, you're going to have type aliases. Like I'm thinking specifically of like Haskell right now, but or pure scripts, you would have, you have to go figure out how to resolve this type. Like all these variables are sitting around and, you know, that could be an alias for another thing and another thing. And you end up spending a lot of your time just looking at types and trying to understand what's going on there. I think the most important thing that you can do when you start learning how to do this, like kind of type decoding is go through simple functions and try to understand, you know, what it could possibly do. The whole, um, Wadler paper on the trick where free theorems for free, where he's like, you know, I can tell you what this function does based on its type signature because it's it's so restrictive that there's, you know, you can't do a lot of things because you can't know anything about the input because of these variables. So the for all A is a very powerful tool in reasoning. So like working those small functions and then learning how to look up aliases and, and reason about what a a function can actually do based on the type signature is, is such an invaluable tool and it'll guide you through every white paper you read and you know people don't even show the implementation oftentimes they'll just show you the type signature and you'll just get it right so i think that is the number one thing to focus on it's very difficult to start thinking in terms of it and working on it but you don't need to know what co-representable is if you can just work out the types and if you go to something like the lens library in Haskell, it's just ridiculous. Like, how do you figure out, you know, what is going on by these types? But if you can do that and you work at that and you really practice it and just kind of follow type to type. And, and just as a quick concrete example, so if you have a monad and, you know, the type of the function you're running takes an A to an M of A or A to M of B or whatever, then you can just look at the type signature. You didn't need to know that it was a monad. You didn't need to know anything about monads. You could just look at the type signature and figure it out. And I think if there was a class or a course on just how to understand types and how to resolve types, then you could throw away all those courses on like, oh, here's what an applicative functor does. And here's, you know, what a, I don't know, name any ridiculous abstraction. And you end up with like a you know, if you get like a monoidal contravariant profunctor thing, you know, like, or I guess that would kind of at odds because contravariant is part of profunctor. But the idea is that you don't really need to know what the stuff does as long as you can understand the types and then just make them line up and then you're, you're good. You're, you've pretty much figured out the world from that point on. So as you get through and you've messed with these different languages, what are some of the lessons you've learned or things that you feel you like better between languages as you have to go pick? Because you see, you said sometimes you like diving into the dynamic language. What are some of the things that you like from the various languages that you've pulled? And what are the lessons there that you've learned that you try and pull in whatever language you're working on? So if you've looked at something in Scala or Erlang or Clojure or Haskell and you have to go and work in a different one, 
What are some of those key things from each language that you found really clicked with you and that actually make something in other languages even nicer? So that's a that's a good one. I, I feel like the number one thing, yeah, there was a great talk by John DeGoes, uh, the last, uh, I think it's the last Lambda Conf, and I'm not going to go there with Lambda Conf. That's just been a horrible mess, and I hope people figure out what to do there. But there was a great talk from the last one where he said that, you know, he, about, he, he kind of talks about his like language that he wants, like the future functional programming language that would be the best one in his mind. And everybody's kind of laughing because he's just removing everything that you think about when you think about functional programming. He's like, oh, we don't want pattern matching. We don't need that. Um, we don't need like recursion and we don't need, it just kind of goes through like everything you'd expect and just throws it out the window. And he's got a lot of really good points in that, though, because if you're, you know, one of the things I've learned is if you do a lot of pattern matching or whatever, you're tying your implementation to your types and then your types are going to change and it's going to be very hard to change your app. And if you're doing folds, well, it's it's a totally different, you're not really referencing these these types. Um, so you don't need to like import them and reference them and deal with them. You can actually just fold your structure down. Um, and so some of the things that I just kind of carry around with me at all, all times is um, I really like some in product types, you know, the canonical either and, and tuple or tuple where you can pretty much define any type <laughs> with those. I won't say any type, but like a lot of the popular ones, at least that I know, I'm not really a type theorist or a category theorist. So, you know, I just say it's hilarious. It must be horrible to be a category theorist in this day and age. Like everybody's like, well, I'm not a category theorist, but let me tell you about category theory. Uh, uh, oh man, must be frustrating for them. But anyway, the fact is that if you bring in just these simple things like sum and, and product types and you can fold them down and you can map over them, you can do a lot. This just small set of tools, you don't need to worry about all these language specific. Like Scala has everything, you know, in the kitchen sink or whatever in that language. And it kind of goes back to the idea of choosing the smallest abstraction or the thing with the least amount of power because it's going to be easier to maintain and reason about. So if you're using JavaScript, you don't go reach for generators immediately. That's crazy. It's, you're going to have like bi-directional communication. And unless you're doing this insane coordination of stuff, you don't need to you know, jump right into the most powerful tools because it's just going to make it harder for you. So working with the, the smallest amount of tools that are the most composable and kind of hide the most details, I think gives you the power to switch from Haskell to F-sharp to, you know, I'm not going to say Erlang because that's a tricky one. You just pretty much have to use the actor model. But, <laughs> but you know, going to JavaScript, like any, any functional language is going to give you the same ideas and same tools if you stick with this small, reasonable set of things like summon types, product types, folds, you know, bring in maybe functor and monad for control flow and information hiding. And, and then you're, you're kind of set. You can do whatever you want. So we're getting towards the end, but I want to make sure that I give you time to bring up any other topics we haven't talked about. There's a few more questions I could ask, but I want to make sure I allot time for you for anything that you think we need to cover before we get to the end. Is there anything we've missed talking about? Any other languages you want to call out or ideas about this that you want to make notice before we continue on? Because I want to save some time to make sure we cover stuff that that you think we need to make sure we talk about as well? 
Sure, thanks. I really, I don't have much. I can say the functional programming community tends to be predominantly male, and it would be wonderful if, if we could do more things to include groups that are a little underrepresented. I think it it's probably because programming in general is, you know, predominantly male and where like it's it's kind of a problem, right? And you wanna bring in more people. So I think if there's efforts that you can do if you're running a conference or meetup or, you know, just helping people online or whatever. I think one thing that I felt I've, I have some regrets on with the Professor Frisbee stuff is I didn't I wasn't aware so many people have a hard time with English or a hard time hearing. It's it's pretty much the least accessible thing you can get, right? And maybe maybe you can argue that like art is like that sometimes, but I I feel like the there was a lot of complaints on the high voices and speed of it. And at first I was like, oh, I'm going to make it the way I want to make it. I don't care. I'm going to do this because I think it's fun and I like it that way. And and taking a step back, it's like, oh, wow, I, I really didn't reach out to people who were having a hard time hearing or having a hard time with English. And and I think uh, just everybody being a little bit more aware of uh, being inclusive of everyone would really do us a lot of good. So yeah, that's all I wanted to mention. And you mentioned bringing in that diversity. So that kind of aligns with one of the topics, but if we're wanting to increase diversity from that, we have a pool of people, at least potentially a more diverse pool, or we could at least make the functional side more diverse by targeting people who are still programmers, but not necessarily have made the gap. So what are some tips for bringing in the functional style and exposing that back to people? Because you've done all, you've got your resources, but you also mentioned you, your coworkers and some other areas. So what are some of the things that if you're going to work with someone and maybe you're targeting them specifically because you've worked with them, but you want to bring them into the functional community. What are some explicit things that people can do or things that you've found that help make that click and bring people in specifically to get that caught up and say, you know what? We got a pretty diverse people at work because we're at this company that actually likes diversity. If I can fold them into the functional programming community as well, just through teaching them and bringing these ideas around. Have you noticed that anything's works better than others? Well, I can make an observation that there's a lot of amazing female functional programmers out there. And I was part of a uh, functional programming panel where I like wanted to include like some of my buddies, the creators of you know Elm and Pure Scripts and stuff on there, and we didn't have a, a woman or any females representing that group. And like a huge regret after that. And and I, I think it's it's more of a mindset because if it's not in the front of your thoughts, you're not going to take the extra effort to go out in every little area and include people. Because if you just go close your eyes and reach into the pool, if the pool is 99.9% this one type of person, then you're going to get that one type of person, right? So the scholarship stuff that um, Strange Loop Dub does is awesome for people who can't quite afford to attend conferences. That's really cool. Groups like the Lambda Ladies or Pi Ladies and uh, or women in programming in general, like it's really, really good stuff to just like see if you can advocate and help them. But also, I noticed this at work, and and I think it's just a a side effect of the fact that people are a little bit. They're trying to be a little bit more inclusive in recent times. So you end up with a lot of people that are relatively new because it was so, so cut and dry beforehand and nobody was really making any of these diversity efforts. So if you're going from functional programming 
don't be pious about it <laughs> and don't be a jerk about it. Like, what, you don't know this? Or, you know, I think a lot of people who are, are very good at functional programming have been programming for a lot of years. I used to go to like Ruby meetups and they knew Ruby on Rails and that was that, right? And then I'd go to the Node meetups and they knew both Ruby on Rails and Node. And I was like, huh, I wonder if that's just because like, you know, they kind of work together or something. I don't know. And then I'd go to like Haskell and they knew all three of those, right? And I was like, okay, it seems to be like people just kind of like as they get more and more experience, they start to gravitate towards like, I don't know, uh, you know, more difficult languages to learn and get good at. Whereas there's a very low bar of entry. If you're going to pick up Ruby on Rails, that's like why the boot camps teach those, right? So once you get to functional style, if we're only recently doing these efforts to include people, I think it helps to just have humility like i i tell people all the time like i don't really know what i'm doing i don't have all this like great background of math to help me with this stuff i just kind of like muddle my way through it and try to help others learn it in a, a humble way instead of a like i know everything and look how much i know and you know you'll one day you'll learn this but i think people can go straight to functional if more people are a little modest and honest about their actual knowledge not just trying to pretend they know everything. That sounds great. And that's some of the conversations I had in this last episode with Bridget Hillier. We kind of talked about that and just the cautionary tale of being the smug Lisbuini or the smug Haskell person or whatever language <laughs> yeah. you choose where it's like, well, see, this is obviously so much better because of this, 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 and this. And it's like, well, yeah, as you said, that starts to become sound pretty pious and pompous and a number of other words that you could probably come up with to describe that yeah versus actually saying if this is better it is better for these reasons if you believe in those reasons so if you believe in small composable functions this is better because of that now you may not accept that premise which is fine but if you do accept that premise then we can actually start to make a case for why this is tangibly better because if you look at this thing versus this thing this thing only does one thing now you may or may not like it but if you're talking about simpler in the aspect of do one thing and do one thing well then this is simpler right yeah and that's that's a that's that's a beautiful way to put that i think that's that's terrific i think also though a lot of functional people are used to years of trying to justify to people who are just like writing you know the stuff they learned in school and kept with it and didn't really spend their time reading academic white papers and like really getting into programming for the love of programming and then they get there and there's this like 300 line loop you know mutable variables all this stuff and they kind of need the ammunition to be like listen like if i write these few composable functions and it's, it's going to simplify everything and on the other side the people are like what i can't read that i don't understand that that's just being clever and so you end up with this like militant side of people, especially in the functional community, because they're just defending what they love and what they spent all this time like learning. And it's hard to justify that to someone who doesn't have all that background and spend all this time. And I, I like that. Like, let's just work on this premise. And if you believe that premise, then I can easily explain this part to you. But yeah, coming from the militant side, I think is why so many people end up being like, oh, you don't know. So, so that's where um, I think functional people tend to turn off the rest of the community. So yeah, I really hope that changes. 
So now we're pretty much close to time because I'm, right. I'm in a meeting room and I'll be kicked out shortly, but not quite yet. But <laughs> right on. We want to make sure to be able to give you the opportunity that if there's anything you want to plug, we kind of talked about your YouTube videos and I'll get links to those series in the show notes and your mostly adequate guide to functional programming book. And I'll get that in the show notes and your talk about how underscore got it wrong. And I'll get that in the show notes as well. But is there anything else you want to plug? Do you have any other upcoming presentations that you're going to Yeah, yeah. So I'm working right now on a series for Egghead that kind of explores how to, if you're in a big functional, I mean, a big object-oriented code base, how do you, how do you add these functional constructs in and kind of fluently compose everything together, whether it's object-oriented or not, and and kind of come up with this really clean way to make sure that your stateless, your control flow is very linear and you still get the benefit of using object-oriented syntax, uh, which some of you didn't even mention. Maybe we mentioned it before the show, but that part where you have to import every single function you're going to use in functional programming, whereas in object-oriented, these functions just kind of new types surface through dot syntax and you don't actually have to explicitly import functions to work with them because you're just calling dot, you know, that's how you get to the function or the method. So working with that style is a big interest in mine, uh, of mine as well as just what really makes code simple in general. If you can really take a step back and say, hey, my code base is easier to reason about and read and refactor and, and all this stuff. Maybe you're not going to get everything all in one go, but if you're attacking these three goals of readability, we can really achieve that. So yeah, I'm working on a series for Egghead. I think we're calling it Practically Functional Programming now because it's not actually functional programming, it's practically. Um, But uh, it's kind of a way to introduce that. And the other thing I wanted to mention is the Mostly Adequate Guide is not dead. I was going to add, you know, several more chapters to it, but I I took a job and and I'm not doing consulting anymore. So I actually uh, ran out of so much free time during the middle of the day at work because I used to own the company and kind of mess around all day. I actually do stuff. But also the way uh, ES2000, it was unfortunate, ES2015 came out pretty much directly after the book <laughs> was was put out there and it instantly felt dated. JavaScript hadn't changed in like 10 years. I released a book and there it is. New, new, new language, new syntax. So, you know, there's a fork of it that Christian Tackle's been working on um, and, and it's all in ES2015 syntax. But the question was like, well, if I write all these new chapters, do I write them in ES5 and then we port them over or do we just start with the new syntax? And it's kind of put a halt to the book for the last several months, but rest assured, I'll be writing more once we figure that out. That sounds great. And then do you have any call to action for the listeners that you want them to take away from this episode? Let me say a few things. If you are listening to this episode and you are interested in writing JavaScript in a functional way, I highly recommend looking into RxJX and just writing that code for a while you'll kind of get the hang of just composing everything and having everything flow through your app. But I am 100% in favor of starting with something like Highland Streams or Data.Task. If you're writing JavaScript or, you know, whether it's Node or the front end, try to use a lazy, async, very minimal library to achieve all your things. What that'll do is give you purity almost by default because nothing happens until you actually pull the trigger at the end, whether you're forking your 
task or you're calling each on your Highland stream or you're calling subscribe on RxJS, like you end up with a very clear, pure model for doing things. And that will guide you into everything else functional rather than sticking with just trying to, you know, work with composition and currying, like really, really get the idea of how to compose everything together and, and really reap the benefits of working with lazy data structures that can help you. And I, I would put data.task at the topmost. If you're really going to get into this, use data.task from Folktale, npm install data.task, and just try to write an app with only that as your abstraction for async stuff. It will pay dividends. And then where can people find you online if they would like to follow you and find out more and keep up to date with what's going on with you? I'm Dr. Boolean on Twitter, D-R-B-O-O-L-E-A-N. I'm sure you know how to spell Boolean. <laughs> I'm Dr. Boolean on Twitter. And um, I'm like, I still have a problem. I like obsessively check Twitter. <laughs> but there's that. I'm on YouTube as Dr. Boolean, GitHub Dr. Boolean. Just that's me. Go check any, anywhere and there I am, except for Facebook. I don't really use Facebook. And we'll get those all linked to the show notes as well. Cool. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Brian, for taking your time to join me today. It was great talking to you and good catching up with you. And again, the pre-show and this call was very informative and very enlightening to see how other people are using it and spreading the word. So thank you for taking your time to join me today. Thank you too, man. This is a great podcast and and keep doing it. It's awesome. (laughs) Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.